0: This is The Guardian.
1: Just over 40 years ago, that great Tory goddess Margaret Thatcher famously said that she wasn't for turning. Something that's come back to bite Liz Truss this week.
2: So I'm being very clear that we will not be going ahead. With the regional payboards. A major U-turn stay then. With national payboards.
1: Is this a Liz Truss U-turn? In fact, Truss and Rishi Sunak have both made U-turns this week. Will that make any difference to their chances? And has Keir Starmer jumped aboard the U-turn fairground ride? The Labour Party in opposition needs to be the Labour Party in power uh, and a government doesn't go on picket lines. Despite his stance banning Labour front benches from attending picket lines, the shadow levelling up Minister Lisa Nandy was on one in Wigan on Monday. Starmer has been boosted recently by his party's poll leads, but some of us still wonder why he seems to be lacking clout and a vision for the country. I'm John Harris and you're listening to Politics Week the UK for The Guardian. Joining me today are The Guardian's Chief Political Correspondent Jessica Elgott and the former Conservative MP and Chief of Staff to Theresa May when she was the Prime Minister, Gavin Barwell, who now sits in the House of Lords for his sins. Uh, hello to you both.
2: Hi. Hello.
1: Now, just before we started this, we were going to talk about Jerry Halliwell posing with the Dean Doris and Liz Truss, but we're not anymore because Jess said something really interesting to me, which was that traditionally this period of the summer is known as the silly season because political news all dries up and the newspapers fill up with ephemera. And Jess said, we don't have the silly season anymore, which I didn't know. So can you explain why August is no longer the silly season? This is the silly season because news stories are all about turtles in the Thames and people sitting in bats of baked beans and stuff ordinarily, but not anymore.
2: I say that in a kind of flippant way, but like mainly because I've never experienced a silly season in my entire time <laughs> of political reporting because there's always been like major... Existential crises going on in British politics ever since I joined the lobby, which was in, um, sort of mid. 2016. So obviously that August that I first was in political reporting there was quite a lot going on in 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 2016 we just had a new prime minister we had a labor leadership contest because Owen Smith was uh, remember him challenging remember that. Uh, remember G- that. Jeremy Corbyn um you know the, the both parties were in a state of intense turmoil and, and you know and then uh, the following year was 2017 when there was also quite a lot going on in the fallout from the general election uh, in 2018, we were definitely in the midst, midst of the Brexit chaos. Checkers was taking place during that during that time. Gavin will remember it well. And 2019, in August, we were having a Tory leadership contest. So you know, we have uh, <laughs> we haven't we just just haven't had a break in August. It doesn't exist
1: anymore. It's a dangerous season politically, Gavin, isn't it? All kinds of crazy stuff can happen.
0: Yeah, I mean, there, there is a sort of opposite way of, lo- of looking at the phenomenon Jess has described, which is actually city season in British politics has been extended to the full 52 weeks of the year. <laughs> it's now just encompasses the whole thing.
1: Right. Talking of which is arguably a perfect case in point playing out in front of us today. We will be talking inevitably about the Tory leadership contest and the two candidates, the U-turns both of them have performed um, in the last few days and um, what, the contest may or may not say about the Conservative Party's talent pool. We will then go to the other side of the House of Commons uh, and talk about the Labour Party. There have been lots of no's from Keir Starmer over the summer, but not many yeses. And I suppose people like me still are wondering what on earth he stands for. Let's talk about the Conservative Party in the leadership contest to start with. Last Tuesday, the Treasury Secretary and Liz Trussbacker, Simon Clark tweeted about Rishi Sunak's, in quote, screeching U-turn over tax cuts. He tweeted, U-turn if you want to, the lady's not for turning, another one of those slightly flimsy tributes to Margaret Thatcher. Now, he has since ended up with a little bit of egg on his face, to say the least, because Liz Truss performed a screeching U-turn in a matter of minutes, it felt like, this week, having floated, I think that's being polite, this idea of regional variations in public sector pay, which would mean people who worked in the public sector getting paid less in in quotes, poorer areas, within a matter of hours, she'd retracted that. Jess, talk us through what happened and, and whether you were surprised by the rapidity of that U-turn.
2: To me, because we got the press release maybe on the you know, the morning before and then it's embargoed until a bit late with the day. As soon as I saw this, I thought, this isn't, this is, this is definitely going not going to last. Not only because, I mean, initially, the reason I thought that's because the sums in it were completely mad. I mean, there was, so it was saying that there was a part of it that said you were going to save 8.8 billion from the civil service pay bill. When you ring the Institute for Government, they say, well, hang on a minute, the civil service pay bill in total is 9 billion. So I'm not sure how you're going to going to save that much money. And there was also another sum in it which talked about um, getting rid of, moving so many people out so you could get rid of London waiting, which said it would serve 533 million pounds. But then if you divided that by the number of people on London waiting, it said that, that London waiting was 25 grand a year. And I was about to jack it all in and become a civil servant and get my 25 grand a year. Um, So there was so much in it that was clearly incorrect and and had to be corrected because much of the policy had been lifted totally wholesale from a press release by the Taxpayers Alliance. Um, And that, press release made it very clear that it applied to the whole public sector and so you you sort of saw the cogs whirring behind the scenes that they were not going to be able to say they could save this amount of money yeah. unless they applied it to the whole public sector so my personal view is behind the scenes it was all kind of a mistake and a made to kind of cover up the fact that they couldn't make the sums work, but then of course it turned into a total political car crash when Ben Houchin, the Tees Valley mayor, said, "Well, what this would mean if you extend it to the whole public sector is cutting the pay of nurses and and policemen, and, and and you know you suddenly had reams of Tory MPs, not just from the north of England, by the way, but from people in you know in the southwest, saying that this is going to hugely, you know, this is going to going to make a massive." difference to my constituents it's the kind of thing that could cost us a general election if it had taken hold in the middle of a general election campaign and so obviously at that point it's going to be ditched you know you just know you can you can smell it coming a mile off and, and and i was surprised it lasted as long as it did
1: gavin i always wonder how how much these sort of u-turns register you've got experience of some of this theresa may famously had to u-turn on her own manifesto plan on social care and she then told us that nothing had changed even though it had how important are these things, and how should they be handled?
0: So I think what's what's more damaging is the attempt to deny there's been a U-turn. Um, you know, if you think about Theresa and the election, that that phrase is the thing that everyone remembers. And uh, Liz's campaign—I can't remember the exact phrase they used—but you know that, that people have been taking it out of context or
1: she said she'd been misrepresented. misrepresented that's yeah, right, yeah.
0: Yeah. So you know, that's that's the thing that actually attracts all the mockery. Um, I think with with the actual U-turns. Look, like if you do too many of them, then you get a reputation as not being competent. You know, when, when Teresa actually appointed me as chief of staff, I went down to see her. And as a kind of icebreaker, I drew up this list of three things she'd done that I really admired and three things she'd done that I thought she'd got completely wrong. And this, I included this as one of the three she'd got completely wrong. And she sort of said to me, well, what would you have said if it was you on, you know, on the platform having to answer that question? And I said, well, I'd have really leaned into it. I'd have said, this is a massive U-turn. We complete, I got this thing wrong and we've completely shifted the policy. And if you vote for me in the general election, then you can know that I'm unlike most politicians, I'm going to be a prime minister. If I get something wrong, I'm not going to plough on regardless. I'm going to own up and I'm going to put it right. So I think you can't do that all the time. But every now and then, if you do get something wrong, leaning into it and owning up to it is better than trying to pretend that there hasn't been a U-turn.
1: But they very rarely do that. Mostly it is just obfuscation and denial and it looks absurd.
0: Yeah, and that's, you know, I think it's the culture we've got to in politics where, you know, certainly with with Boris Johnson as Prime Minister, there's almost like a never admit, you misspoke, you got anything wrong, just deny, deny, deny. But the further I get away from politics, the more I just see the way ordinary people react when they see politicians on TV or hear them on the radio saying things which are demonstrably untrue. It doesn't do anything to enhance their credibility.
1: So we just hear the fingers down a blackboard sound of Liz Truss claiming that it had been misrepresented. Let's hear a bit of that.
2: My policy on this has been misrepresented. There was never any intention to affect teachers and nurses. But I don't want to worry people. I don't want people to be concerned. So I am being very clear that we will not be going ahead with the regional pay boards. A major U turn then. With national pay boards. Is this a
1: Liz Truss U turn? Right, let's move on to Rishi Sunak. Rishi Sunak's U turn was on tax cuts, um, scrapping VAT on energy bills, and he said he would lower the income tax rate to sixteen percent, having been Mister Tax Cuts. So are the last thing we should be embracing now, That's I have to qualify that slightly because, as far as I understand it, that rather fantastical cut in income tax rates. He, he's not, if he were to become Prime Minister, he's not planning that for a fair old while. But nonetheless, this is how Rishi Sunak defended his position on not cutting during the TV debates. Liz, we have to be honest. We, well, we have to honest. be honest. But borrowing your way out of inflation isn't a plan. It's a fairy tale.
2: I think it is wrong to put taxes up because that is what we're talking about.
1: Right, now he's now got fairy tales of his own. Gavin, I wonder, two U-turns, one on either side, um, who comes out of this worse?
0: I think that the the trust one is more damaging uh, in terms of the real world impact it would have had on thousands of MPs, constituents.
1: Yeah, people would have worried about this, right? Yeah.
0: Um, You know, I think... With Rishi, you can, you can slightly defend it and say, well, he's talking about a temporary thing that's helped during the, help the cost-of-living crisis rather than a long-term shift in policy. But the reality is, it is a change, and the change has been pushed on him because he's behind in the race, and Truss has made the running on tax cutting, and he's felt the need to respond to it.
1: Do you think, Jess, that Sunak is starting to look a bit desperate? I mean, he's starting to look like somebody he obviously isn't, really, and that's happened in short order.
2: I mean, the, the, the Sunak tax cuts, I'm sort of less excited about them being a U-turn, given that they go on till 2029, when no one has got any idea what the fiscal situation is going to be like at all the vat on energy bills is sort of more egregious in my in my eyes because of of so much briefing we've had uh, when that was a a labor policy so much briefing we had out of the treasury about how that was bad it would hit the wrong people it would we want to target it differently and then just come out and announce it as if it's your policy you've thought of i thought was pretty hilarious for sunak what he's had to do more obviously is like come out with loads and loads of culture war stuff you know on statues or on, um, you know, deporting people who've stolen a packet of crisps, or which seems to be ticking lots of the kind of Tory membership boxes, including on serious issues like grooming gangs um, and Islamist extremism, which are, you know, obviously very serious issues, but also ones that feel designed to kind of put him in a particular place in the political sphere.
1: But it's not working, Gavin. I, I read today now how much, how much um, importance one should attach to these... Polls of Tory members, I don't know. But the Times, for example, today says that Liz Truss is on 60%. I mean, it's now now almost a, a complete certainty that she's going to be the Prime Minister, isn't it?
0: It feels like that. I mean, I think the pollsters would, would tell you that polling Conservative Party members is a much harder thing to do, technically, than polling the general electorate because it's a smaller subset of people. They're harder to find, and we don't know exactly what the demographic profile of the Conservative Party's membership is. So it's hard to make sure that you've got a representative sample, but the the scale of the lead would suggest that she's a sort of very strong favorite to win. Look, to me, John, the most interesting thing in that poll wasn't the headline figure. Uh, It was the data underneath that showed that a majority of Conservative Party members don't actually think there should be a leadership election because they think Boris Johnson shouldn't have been forced to resign. And I think that's the fundamental problem that Rishi has got. He's trying to win an election among an electorate that didn't want Boris Johnson forced out.
1: And in fact, you can sense this in some of the commentary around the leadership election. So I went to my local Lidl uh, 20 minutes ago, bought a copy of the Daily Mail, hid it under my shirt and ran out again. And um, here's their page long endorsement of Liz trust. And they are effectively backing Liz trust because they see her as being the heir to Boris. I mean, that's their pitch, right? So this idea that this was some big clearing out and a, and, a, and a turning of the page and so on, Jess, it isn't really like that. This is a much more complicated, contorted leadership election in that sense.
2: Yeah, and I think that that is that is potentially what Liz Truss's, you know, biggest weakness is with the with the electorate. I, I, I think that Labour shouldn't underestimate underestimate this trust as a, as a candidate she's an, inc- an a great political survivor she's managed to reinvent herself over three administrations and contort her politics into whatever the the politics of the day demanded and that is a you know that's a political skill in itself one of the issues that she has fundamentally got wrong i think in terms of appealing to the the general electorate and will, where she'll struggle will be that um Boris Johnson is deeply unpopular in the rest of the country. And she and and selling herself as the continuity Boris Johnson candidate is a big is, is an issue for her.
1: Okay, let's just talk quickly about whoever wins this contest and what they're going to be faced with in the autumn. I mean, this is the this is the sort of ghostly presence, I think, in the midst of what passes for political debate this summer, because we all know what's going to happen. On August the 26th, I think I'm right in saying, Ofgem, the energy regulator, is going to announce the new level of the energy price cap and therefore the likely levels of people's energy bills. And the projections, which are credible, are absolutely terrifying. We're talking about typical household energy bills reaching in excess of £3,500 a year by January. That will clearly have an effect on inflation more generally. The cost of living crisis, so-called, which seems to me to be a social emergency, that's probably the more accurate way of putting it, is going to reach a, a new height. And that's not going to be a time for talking about statues and how wokery is like a, like a bulldozer going through the green belt and Keir Starmer being a plastic patriot and all the ephemera that we've heard in the midst of this debate. That's the stuff of politics as crisis management. And I just wanted to ask you both a, a very brief question about that, really, which is what your senses of Rishi Sunak and Liz Truss and what they've got in their political armory if they become the prime minister or when they become the prime minister to deal with that.
0: They're both going to have to quite quickly come up with a properly thought through package uh, in an autumn budget. I mean, in terms of armoury in the tank, I would say look, Sunak, I think, intellectually, is in pre- all the Treasury officials that I speak to that work with him talk highly of him. Uh, I don't know if you saw the the endorsement video William Hague did for him, but that, I think, painted a very positive picture of him. But he's pretty inexperienced in terms of how long he's been in Parliament to be Prime Minister. Liz, I think, has, has done a bigger variety of jobs. As Jess was saying, she's kind of demonstrated herself, uh, to be a survivor, but it's a very different thing from kind of boxing under the weather that someone else has created to being prime minister and trying to create the climate, uh, for yourself. So I, I think that you've got several things going on here at once. One is we kind of view the past through rose-tinted specs. So we, we tend to remember the best politicians from when, from, from olden days, as it were. Then I think it's actually become a harder job to do. Running the Conservative Party has definitely become a harder thing to do. Running the country, I think, I'd also argue, has become a harder thing to do. But thirdly, I think the talent pool in both parties has declined. I think the job has become less attractive.
1: Pause Partly, there. Pause there. Hold on. What? Yeah. Now tell me, before we move on to this question about the job being less attractive, there must be, and I would imagine there are, deep sort of generational and cultural factors at work here. Why do you think the political talent pool has noticeably got smaller?
0: So I, th- I think they're mainly about who, who wants to come into politics at the moment. Um, you know, I think social media has completely changed the game. Um, people have to put up, particularly often female candidates, people from ethnic minorities, but more generally put up with far more abuse than they ever would have done historically. Um, and part, mainly because MPs own fault because of the way they handled the whole expenses crisis, but the job isn't as well remunerated as it used to be. And for both those reasons, I think there's a whole load of people you can think of in the past who just wouldn't become in peace today.
1: Yeah, I think, but I think personally, our generation, me and Gavin's generation, Generation X, was just not cut out for seeking high political office and the responsibilities that come with it. I think we're a very, very cynical generation. I think we came of age in the 90s, which was a very sort of superficial, ephemeral, sort of hedonistic decade. And therefore, as Zadie Smith said famously, I watched the finest minds of my generation take jobs on the fringes of the entertainment industry. I just think there's a whole load of people of of our age who are now in their sort of late 40s and early 50s who just didn't like the idea of all that responsibility and anything halfway serious. And they became, a lot of them became comedians and writers and journalists and what have you, I dare say. And and therefore, there was a big gap left in politics. I think that might be addressed um, when it comes to, people with political aspirations of Jess's age but I think generation x and politics just didn't mix i don't know what you think of that theory Jess
2: my my sense is really that the reason why there's not a great talent stream coming through i know more about the talent stream in the labor party with the labor party i think one of the problems has been is that you've had to like kind of go with the wind on party factionalism and that's been the case for for decades but has particularly been you know been in the case for you know for the past two maybe two generations of MPs there's certain seats that various people have felt like they were owed particularly in party, you can't just be someone who just turns up and thinks you know i've had a really good career outside and um I really want to give something back to my community. I want to get involved in politics. The, one of the few exceptions to that, of course, is Keir Starmer. But amongst his MPs, there's a lot, of, awful lot of resentment about that, about, about that route into politics, and a feeling like you'd have to graft to get elected in the same way that. That other people have in the Conservative Party as well. I think that there has been, you know, a, a real tendency to, to to promote people firstly on ideological grounds and secondly on competence grounds for a long time. And you saw that with Boris Johnson's cabinet. Never, like, never mind the the selection of of MPs and and the and the 2019 intake. And we've also had like the third thing I'd say is that we've had a lot of political turmoil where a lot of people who maybe weren't necessarily meant to get elected have ended up being elected in on both on both sides of. of on both both political parties in the last two in the last two rounds of general elections, because of the surprise results.
1: Okay, but we are agreed by the sound of it that there is something in the spectacle of Liz Truss battling it out with Rishi Sunak and these U turns and the sense that this is quite a sort of insubstantial, unconvincing kind of contest, which does say something about a deep problem as regards political talent. Is that fair to say? That's 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 a shared position. It's
0: a, I think it's a, a bit a bit that. I, I think also, you know. the it feels to me like the whole kind of leadership election is taking place in a completely imaginary world. Yes, I agree. Where, you know, focusing on issues that actually most of the people I represented in Croydon Central don't really care a great deal about, trying to pretend that there's loads of money available for tax cuts when there isn't, and, you know, the elephant in the room, the effect that the Brexit deal has had on our economy uh, and our capacity to afford a certain level of public service. So the whole kind of debate feels to me slightly detach from the reality that we're actually going to have to deal with.
1: We are going to talk now, after this pause, about the other side of politics, the Labour Party, Keir Starmer, and what he actually stands for, and the stories he may or may not, sooner or later, tell us. Welcome back. In this half of the podcast, we're going to be talking about the Labour Party. Um, After a week where Keir Starmer and his frontbench colleagues came out against nationalisation of utilities, then rode back on it, then back again, people have been left asking, not for the first time, what Starmer's values are, what he believes in, where the Starmer project, if such a thing exists, is actually going. Now, a recent poll by Ipsos Mori put Labour 14 percentage points ahead of the Conservatives. I think there's been another spate of polls lately that suggest that things now Boris Johnson is on the verge of exiting the scene are tightening up a bit but we shall see anyway the Labour Party in that poll was on 44% the Tories were on 30% so it's worth asking if Labour were to be once again the party of government do we really have an idea of what that would be like and what their flagship policies would be um I have a complaint which I've voiced very regularly to the point of being completely tedious on this podcast that all I hear from Keir Starmer so far, really, is no, no, no. He says no to agreements with the Lib Dems, no to any agreement with the SNP, no to nationalising utilities, no to shadow ministers being on picket lines. There is a sense in which he wants the electorate or the media to know that his toughness is manifested in the fact that he keeps ruling things out. But I wonder what he's ruling in. Because politics is, is... 50% no's, no question, but it's 50% yeses, and I don't hear many of those. All we've really got so far in terms of a big headline thing is this idea, which you can find all over the internet in Labour Party memes, that Labour's mission in government will be economic growth, which is not a sort of winning political slogan much. And then...
2: I didn't think the Tories More were in abstract. Of that. They're not in favour of that, Gavin. <laughs> no, exactly. Who's against economic
1: growth. Well, no, actually, that's unfair. There are some, there are some um, quite enlightened green people who are against economic growth, so we shouldn't make that out to be a sort of heretical position. But nonetheless, it doesn't seem to me to butter many political parsnip, parsnips. He's very keen on abstract nouns. Security, prosperity, respect. Again, I don't know anyone who's against any of those. Have you met anyone who's against prosperity or security or respect? Um, so I wonder, really, where's all this going and what is Keir Starmer doing? Jess, there is a plan here of some description, isn't there? Um,
2: I don't think so. Um, <laughs> uh, uh, because, uh, I mean, the, you know, the more I, you know, I speak to very senior people in Labour all the time and, and, and I think there is a concern that, you know, the sense that Keir Starmer would make a good prime minister... It's not necessarily the answer to what would Keir Starmer do as prime minister, because both those things are very different things, right? You know, you can believe that Keir would be, you know, a good manager of the of the state, but not understand what his vision is to do with that power. I think there are some concerns at quite senior labour uh, levels of the Labour Party about, you know, how they can articulate that vision until until around now, when I've sort of been started asking these questions in, you know, a lot more seriously. About what what we're gonna you know when when Labour sets out its vision I've been reasonably relaxed about the no 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 as you described it because my my view is that the, the, in opposition you oppose things that is fundamentally your primary job is to oppose and setting out a program for government when you're miles away from an election is is rubbish because your policy your good policy ideas get stolen your bad ones get mocked and most of them get forgotten about so you you actually need to to start Setting it out when the, when people are paying attention to what the alternative is, but on the, but but I think now is the time. For sure, I mean now is the time to start setting that out, and you'd expect it, you would expect as well to see some serious thought and serious efforts going into, into the run-up to conference. This is the first Labour Party conference at the end of September, that Keir Starmer will ha- be able to, to, to speak directly to the country. You know, many people in Labour thought it was inevitable they had to spend last conference sewing up all of those party reforms. That was the moment of maximum power for Keir Starmer, and if he was going to do it, he had to do it then. Right. Now, he has no excuse not to talk directly to the country.
1: Okay. Now, I'm, when I make these criticisms about it's all knows, and I don't hear any yeses, I don't mean yeses in the, forms of, in the form of you know, fully-costed, detailed policies. I mean in terms of a political narrative, a story about the country, what we've been through, who we are, where we could go if the Labour Party was in government. Now, by this stage of the political cycle when Tony Blair was around, with the caveat that they were vastly different political circumstances and all the rest of it, he had, he had a good story. He had several. And he was able to convey this sense of profound optimism about the country and where it was going. He had a lot of no's, no to Clause Four, you know, no, no to old Labour and all the rest of it. That that had all been dealt with. But he was a sort of yes politician, and Keir Starmer doesn't strike me as being a yes politician. I wonder, Gavin, in that or any other context, you speak to people in the Conservative Party, what do they think of him? Do they think of him now as a credible threat? No.
0: Uh, I don't think they, I don't think they worry too much about him. That's one of the reasons why Boris Johnson took so long to go, because they kind of thought, well, if we keep Boris, we we still might be able to beat Keir, even with Boris sort of damaged by party game. Look, you said, you just said, if I heard you right, you just said you, you don't think Keir's a yes politician. I'd go a little bit further. I'm not even sure if Keir's really a politician. I think that he is someone who believes very passionately in public service, but he never strikes me really as someone who's rooted in politics. And this job you described of kind of having a narrative about how the country would be different if you were prime minister, it's the hardest thing, actually. You 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 know, Jess thinks about the people she knows, conservative ministers or Labour shadow ministers. Most of them know how to go about working out what they would do running a particular department or how to critique the person who's doing it at the moment. But when you put them in the top job, either prime minister or leader of the opposition, and they have to some way create something that binds together their views on all these different issues. That's the toughest thing to do. And here doesn't seem to be anywhere close to it.
1: Yeah, the point is, I suppose, that I completely accept that coming up with convincing political narratives that can stir people enough to go and vote for you is very, very difficult. But that's, that's one of the requirements of leadership, right? That's why, the in theory, you run for the job and you get selected to do it. There's a very good interview in uh, the New Statesman's summer special with Lisa Nandy, the shadow levelling up, up secretary. And she, she talks about this contrast between her experience of growing up very much in a sort of Labour Party family steeped in politics as against Keir Starmer's experience. And she says, quote, many of us grew up in the Labour tradition. I was delivering party leaflets when I was seven. He's not steeped in career politics. He's come in a lot more recently. Now, that you can see in, in the sense, and I've, I've heard this from people high up in the Labour Party, that he accepts that narrative is not his thing. Which is quite an admission for a party leader. That's one thing, but then also just in terms of the day-to-day hurly Billy Jess. He always looks nervous on TV. Yeah,
2: and I think I, I, I think that I don't want to sound too. I think what Keir has done to the Labour Party shouldn't be underestimated. I'm going to defend him for a little while. Go on, because has to. the the Labour Party in 2019 was in like one of the worst states that you you could ever you know, see a political party after that election. They thought they might be out of power for another, you know, another 10 years, another 15 years. It wasn't inconceivable. You know, the state of party morale, the people who were working, there was a mass excess of people working for the party. There are people suing each other from inside the party for vast sums of money. And Keir Starmer has taken that to a 14 point lead. I mean, that, you know, that is not all the Tories' collapsing I don't think there has been a fundamental remaking of the Labour Party and, and how it's run and how it operates which is not perfect by any stretch of the imagination there is a lot of things I would quibble about and many people would but that is no small achievement and if you speak to even very ambitious people in the shadow cabinet you might expect to be agitators people like West Streeting they've got a lot of respect for what Keir Starmer has done to the Labour Party over that period of time. But there is another step to take. And the and the doubts, I think, are about what the how does he take that final step? What is the plan for that final step? And often we're told we're on the cusp of hearing it and we don't hear
1: it. There are interesting parallels perhaps here with Theresa May Gavin. I mean, she was she was regularly said to be a politician who didn't have nearly enough charisma and was too sort of stiff and unemotional, and therefore couldn't tell the kind of stories that we require, really, from political leaders. Do you think that compa- that comparison's valid? She was full of the, yeah. the, the, the spirit of public service and duty. I mean, that was, her yes. sort of, that was her calling card. And maybe she lacked precisely that kind of next step thing that Jess has just mentioned.
0: I think there's a slight difference. There are some similarities. There's, there is a difference. I think Theresa was steeped in politics. Her involvement in politics went back a long way. I think that the the thing by by her own admission she found hardest was the kind of communication skills bit of the job. But to your question that you were asking, Jess, about him him looking nervous, I don't think he likes the adversarial bit of politics at all. And actually, probably many of the people listening to this might agree that the whole kind of pantomime show of PMQs isn't particularly um, edifying. So I don't think he's scared. Of it I just don't think it's it's something that he enjoys doing. Whereas someone like William Hague or Blair, they enjoyed that regular sparring. Right, it was, they you know it was something that they they took a lot of pleasure out of
2: engaging with each other and see who would yeah, go yeah. on
0: top of each. Always oh, think- that
2: always on that on that front, I always wonder like you know how important that stuff is is to your regular person like that that skill like you know how much they care about whether you can like win can argument on th- this house believes this that or the other I, f- I feel yeah, like yeah. that you know sometimes that that I feel like sometimes that is overstated but one of the things that I think they really people care about so much is authenticity and 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 I think that was under one of the things ultimately that um, that boosted Jeremy Corbyn so much in the 2017 election, and ultimately was part of his undoing in the 2019 election, where Brexit required him to be deeply inauthentic in many ways, uh, and therefore he lost that bonus and I think he he can tap into that authenticity by the way he's managed to compare himself to Boris Johnson as this kind of man of trust and integrity and that is something that he believes and that's clearly who he is but is that enough and does that work with the next Prime Minister?
1: And in conclusion that question about authenticity and looking nervous. I mean, I have this theory, really, that the public tends to take to political leaders who look like they enjoy it, right? It didn't take to Gordon Brown magnificent well, because he looked like he was having a horrible time and he didn't want to be there, you know, whereas Tony Blair looked like he enjoyed it. David Cameron looked like he enjoyed it. Theresa May didn't really look like she was enjoying it, <laughs> certainly not towards the end. There definitely is that dichotomy. And then let's assume that Liz Truss is going to win this leadership election. I think she's going to have the looking nervous on TV, not enjoying it terribly much problem mm. as well. Do don't you know if I agree so. with that. Oh, I'm not sure
0: then. if I agree with that. I'm not sure if I agree with that.
1: You think she's going to be loving she, it?
0: I think the most interesting thing about this leadership election, if, if we if we all agree it's not been a particularly edifying spectacle, the most interesting thing is a load of people wrote her off beforehand and said she'd be wooden and hopeless and Rishi would take her apart in the
2: hustings and the TV debates, and that hasn't happened. Agreed. I think that she's she's looked like she's enjoying this contest.
1: So there's a sporting chance that she may yet defy the odds and win a general election?
2: Yeah, absolutely. I, th- I think no one should underestimate like how much of a task it is for Labour to win. You know, win back a, a general election. Not only do they have to win back the red, red wall, but they have to win back so many more seats like that in the yeah. southwest places where demographics are moving in their favour. They have to win back vast swathes of Scotland. It's an enormous task. I think the odds on the Conservatives winning the enne- in the next election they have to be, you know, given the starting point.
0: I don't agree with that. I think I think the most likely outcome by far is a hung parliament. I don't I don't think the public at the moment have got much warmth for either of the political parties. So I agree with Jess's first point, but I don't think an outright win for either party is, if she's got a sporting chance, but I think the most likely outcome by far is hung Pong.
1: Right, good. On that sort of mild cliffhanger, we will have to stop. Uh, first of all, thank you for joining us today, both of you, Gavin Barwell and Jess Elgort.
0: Pleasure. Pleasure.
1: Thank you. Uh, and thanks to you for listening. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. If you did, Make sure you subscribe to Politics Weekly UK wherever you get your podcasts and even better, leave us a review, preferably a nice one. Next week when the podcast goes out on Wednesday, we'll be joined by the RMT Union General Secretary Mick Lynch and Miata Farnbuller, the Chief Executive of the New Economics Foundation to discuss strikes, the future of trade unions, the looming cost of living emergency, you name it. This episode was produced by Frankie Toby. The music is by Axel Cacoutier, and the executive producers are Maz Ebtaraj and Nicole Jackson.